Good evening. I'm Anna Halligan, and welcome to the Ecology Hour. Tonight, I am joined by Dr. Stuart Reed, who is the proprietor of a firm called Western Fishes, and we are going to talk about a really interesting fish species. We're going to talk about lamprey, um, which are known often as, or referred to often as eels, um, but they are actually a jawless fish. And we're really lucky to have Stuart with us tonight. He is uh, very, very knowledgeable about all of the species of lamprey. And I want to say thank you for joining me. Well, happy to be here, Anna. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So this is an exci- this is exciting for me. I feel like I know, you know, the basics about lamprey, but I'm, I'm, I am not super knowledgeable about all of the different um, types of lamprey. And it also feels like this particular fish, um, there's still a lot that we are trying to learn about these fishes and their their habitat needs and their life histories. So I'm excited to learn from you this evening. And maybe we could begin by you uh, introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about the work that you do with Western Fishes and, um, and, and what you're learning. Sure, well, so I'm a fish biologist and uh, I consider I'm independent and consider myself that I represent the, the fishes here on the West Coast, the freshwater fishes at this point, and pretty much work from Canada down into Mexico and looking at ways to conserve them and promote their, their conservation, learn about their biology, and get people involved in their stewardship. And then I just find people to pay the fishes, the fishes' bills for them. The, um, you know, so I, I work on just about all the fishes here on the West Coast except for the salmonids. I figured a lot of good people working on anadromous salmon, and so I focus on things like sculpin and dace and suckers. have done a lot of work on Modoc sucker, which was recently delisted and recovered. Um, still work on it. And uh, I've been working on lampreys since about 1997 when I arrived in the Klamath Basin. My understanding is there are parasitic lamprey, and then there are non-parasitic lamprey. And, I mean, these are ancient fish, uh, and, and they have a, a long history uh, tied to both to, to people in the ecology of the Pacific Northwest. And they're, they're kind of like salmon in some ways. At least the parasitic ones are a little like lamprey. But can you talk a little bit about the different kinds of lamprey and where we find them and um, maybe even a little bit about how many kinds of lamprey there have been in history and how many we have today? Well, sure. Well, first of all, I wouldn't say that lamprey are kind of like salmon. You wouldn't say that a child was like its parent. You'd rather say, I mean, you wouldn't say that a parent was like its child. Rather, you'd say that the child was like the parent. And the lampreys have been around for about 450 million years, somewhere around there. Interestingly, in that time, they have not changed a great deal outwardly. So when we look at a lamprey, we say, well, 
a lot of times people refer to them as a primitive fish. They've been around for 450 million years. They look about the same. But actually, if you, the way I like to think about them is that this is a fish that figured out how to do things early on and has been refining its biology and life history for the last 450 years. Turns out that now none of the lampreys we have now, including the big Pacific lamprey, have been around for 450 years, but they are the ultimate outcome of those lineages. Turns out that we, are, we, we know all about the Pacific lamprey here on the coast, the big guy that swims up the rivers, but there are actually a lot of other species of lamprey. In fact, in the Klamath Basin alone, the Klamath River and Upper Klamath Basin, there are seven species of lamprey. Five of those are found nowhere else in the world. In the world overall, there's only about 50 species. So we have easily a seventh of the world species right here in the Klamath River. And if we throw in California, we have a little bit more. So this diversity, what drives it is that each of these lampreys is occupying a somewhat different niche. They're different sizes. Some live in a focus on Upper Klamath Lake. Some are river-oriented. Some don't feed at all when they become adults. And they just, they spawn, they grow up, they spawn, and they die never having fed on a fish. So we're in a very cool area from the standpoint of diversity, and we have to think about all these species in their own, in their own niches in the ecology of the different rivers and aquatic habitats that they occupy. So now let's see, where are we? Oh, you know, one of the things you brought up was that we don't know a lot about lampreys. And that's one of the really interesting things about lampreys, that lampreys, we know so little that almost anything that anybody becomes interested in, in lampreys, is something that we need to learn more about. So all of us, even the people that specialize in lampreys, and I've been working on lampreys since 1997, none of us know a whole lot about lampreys. There's so many gaps in our understanding, and that's critical for their conservation, because until we understand how they work, we really are challenged in figuring out how to conserve them. You know, I feel like most people, when they think about lamprey, they think about the parasitic ones. So can you talk a little bit about their kind of basic biology and life history, you know, starting from, and this is where I, I, I think when I said they're a little like salmon, you're right, they're very different, <laughs> but they do have some similar habitat to salmon and trout, and they also will leave a saltwater environment, they're anadromous, and come into a freshwater environment and spawn. And so can you talk a little bit about that, their process of, of um, reproduction and then their life history in freshwater and in saltwater? Sure. So let's, let's start at the egg as a good place to start, and the Pacific lamprey, and what I'll sort of do is focus on Pacific lamprey, since it's what people are more familiar with, and the other lampreys have have general similarities with, with uh, some differences as to whether or not they go out to sea or not, and whether or not they feed or not as adults. But the Pacific lamprey starts out in a red, very similar to a salmon red, except it is one constructed by the parents 
using their sucker mouths. So they go into an area of cobble or, or gravel and they pick up all the rocks with their mouths and arrange them around in a circular nest. And this gives them both a good place to lay their eggs and a good place to sit out of the flow of the river. So it's sort of a refuge from the, the current of the river where they can relax and attend to mating and such. So they'll lay, the Pacific lamprey will lay about 250,000 eggs. That's a lot of eggs. Uh, very, very small. They hatch out, unlike most salmonids, they hatch out very quickly within about two weeks. One, one thing about lampreys, as I said, there's a lot of things we don't know. There's a lot of sort of specific bits of information, like how many, how many days to hatching, where you have to wave your hands a little bit. It's around two weeks, but it depends on temperature and, uh, and time of year and such. They, uh, after about two weeks, they hatch out and they're the size, in fact, we refer to them as eyelashes. So they're very, very small, and at this point, they're referred to as an amicete or a larval lamprey. And amicetes, unlike the adults, have no eyes, they have no teeth, and they have no sucker mouth. This larval stage, which is crucial in, in lamprey ecology, occupies burrows in the sediment. So in a way, you can think of them as earthworms moving around in the sand. In fact, when you go to a swim hole and dig your toes in the sand, you're probably upsetting a number of amicetes that are underneath you. And they live in these burrows and they filter the water. They filter the water primarily from the water column itself. So in an area where you may have 60 larval lampreys in a square meter, they are busy filtering the stream water and in fact, a recent study we did down in San Luis Obispo that was done uh, by the city of San Luis Obispo demonstrated that lampreys reduce the concentration of coliform bacteria through their filtering activity. So they're really changing both the structure of the bottom and the uh, and the water column above. Now, I said that they started out the size of an eyelash, and so you think, well, 60 eyelashes in a square meter isn't very much. But they spend anywhere from three to seven years, waving our hands a little bit, uh, in the sediment, and during that time, they will grow up to about the size of a pencil. So now you have 60 pencil-sized creatures burrowing around in the bottom, filtering the water. And you can see that's a lot of effect. It also means that there's three to seven generations of lampreys in the stream bottom all the time in just about any stream that you go into on the West Coast. So then you have this blind, toothless, filter-feeding creature that transforms into juvenile lamprey, at which point it gets eyes, it gets a sucker mouth, and it gets teeth. So it's a huge change. In fact, for a long time, they thought that larval lampreys and adult lampreys were totally different organisms. But they develop all these characters of the adults, and then in the case of Pacific lamprey, they wait for a big rainstorm, hop up into the water column, 
and swim out to sea. Once they get out to sea, they look for a fish or whale to feed on. And what they'll do is, and this is true of all the parasitic lampreys, they'll burrow in, or don't burrow in, they, they open up a hole on the fish with their little, their little teeth. Their teeth are actually made of chitin, like a beetle. And they will suck out fluids, a little bit of blood, a little bit of uh, body fluids, and a little bit of flesh out of that wound. And then at some point, they drop off. We know that in many cases, they're not killing their prey, probably in most cases, because we find older fish with numerous healed scars on them. So they're kind of cultivating their prey base. If you go out and kill all your prey, then there aren't any left. But if you just take a little bit every once in a while, then you can maintain the population of your prey species without, uh, without eliminating it or reducing it. So after, and this is a big black hole that we really know little about, after about one to two years at sea, long enough for them to grow from the size of a pencil to about, oh, 18, 20 inches, and uh, the uh, thickness of, say, a red bull can, um, they come back in to the, uh, to the coast, to fresh water. So they move in out of the ocean where they have spread all over. We find them in the ocean as far south as the Revilla Gigero Islands off of southern Baja. We find them all the way up in the Bering Sea, and they come back to the west coast and move up the rivers. Now, one big difference between the lampreys and the salmonids is that lampreys are not uh, show no fidelity to their local to their natal stream. So they don't go back to the stream except casually. They don't go back to the stream they were born in. This means that a lamprey is able to say, remember I said lampreys have been thinking about how to do this a long time. Well, they've figured out that restricting themselves to one stream limits their opportunities. So instead what they do is they go down the coast when they're ready to come in, they go, does this smell like a good river? Does it have amicetes in it? Because they're very sensitive to the smells of, um, of the pheromones of amicetes. Is there plenty of flow? Is this a, a good river to go up? And they move up it and they find habitat to spawn in and they reproduce. So they, uh, when we look at the genetics, and in fact, Damon Goodman initiated this way back in 2004, the, uh, when we look at their genetics, unlike the salmon, we find no real structure in the genetics up and down the coast of the lampreys. It's a, a pretty well-mixed population, which means that what happens in the Columbia, what happens in the Sacramento, those systems also affect what happens in Freshwater Creek or something like that. So once they come in, they start moving upstream, and they swim upstream, usually along the bottom in lower energy environments. They come up when they encounter something like a waterfall. They climb up it. We can get to that later. 
And then they, in most cases, settle in for overwintering. So they spend a year in fresh water once they come in. During this time, they don't feed. And they wait instead, building up their egg masses, getting ready to spawn in the following spring. So they usually are coming up in, in the, up in the spring and waiting till the next spring to spawn. We actually do see them coming up in any time of year, but the majority in the spring. And Keith Parker also, uh, with the Yurok tribe, he determined that there were some individuals that are coming up who are already much more advanced in the maturation of their eggs. So it's possible, and we haven't confirmed it, except that they have mature eggs, it's possible that some of the lampreys are coming in and spawning immediately once they get into the rivers. And so that's one of those things that is uh, yet to be discovered. Anyway, then the next spring, they dig their reds, their nests in the bottom, and spawn. And then after spawning, the adults die, similar to many of the salmon. And their, their body mass goes back into the ecosystem and is a major source of marine nutrients coming up from the ocean into fresh water, and particularly above waterfalls that salmon can't get by, but lamprey do, such as in the High Sierra and stuff. And that's pretty much the cycle of a Pacific lamprey. Now, other parasitic lampreys, like what we have in the Klamath Basin, they do things very similarly, except that they uh, are resident within the Klamath River, or in the case of the upper Klamath Lake lamprey, they do migrate, but only up into the highlands there in uh, like Deer Hort Mountain up in, the, up in the Klamath. But the other group of lampreys that you mentioned were the brook lampreys. And the term brook lamprey simply refers to the fact that a brook lamprey does not feed as an adult. So it gets all the bad rap for being a, being a lamprey, except that as soon as it turns into an adult, it starts actually shrinking and using its body mass instead of feeding to build up eggs. And then, like the parasitic ones, they spawn and they die the following spring. But they only get up maybe eight inches long maximum. Learning about a species like this, I think this is part of the reason why I decided to study ecology and biology, because this is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> so the so the brook trout, um, excuse me, brook trout, it's not, not what we're talking about. The, the brook lamprey. That's part of the lamprey prey base. Right. Oh, okay. So they, how, if they're not feeding as an adult, is there adult life stage, kind of a, a condensed period in the overall time that an individual is alive? Well, that's a good question. The, the brook lamprey, actually, they'll transform in the fall, late summer, fall, into adults. And then they hold over through the winter without feeding until the following spring, early summer, so May, June type in the in the climate area um and during that time as i say they're using their body reserves to um 
to build their sort of trading body reserves for eggs. And they'll end up, they're pretty much a big sack of eggs, and they'll have shrunk. If they started out at, say, six or seven inches, they'll have shrunk maybe two inches by the time they actually spawn. So, so say, six months later. And, and you probably just said this. About how long is an individual alive? So it actually depends on where you are um, and how fast they grow. We've always felt that lampreys um, spend about three to seven years, and it's hard to determine because they don't have good aging structures, as these blind filter feeders down in the sediment. So that's a larval stage that may be up to seven years long. Then the adult stage is for the parasitic ones, generally maybe a year or two out at sea for the the big Pacific lamprey, which gets a lot bigger. Um, We really don't know, but it's beginning to look like some of them are coming back in about two to three years. We've gotten some very exciting tag returns out of the, uh, out of the Columbia basin that suggests that, that these individuals are coming back that quickly. Which is pretty good considering how big they get and how uh, many calories they build up. The, um, on the book lamprey, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, so the, when you look at a lamprey, we think of the adult life stage as sort of the expression of being a lamprey, but really the, it spends most of its time as a larva. Now, we, we did just find, uh, Damon Goodman and I, working down in San Luis Obispo, found by tracking a recently recolonized stream, San Luis Obispo Creek, we were able to determine that the lampreys that came in and spawned, their amacetes actually came out in less than two years. Is it less than two years, less than three years? Anyway, very quickly. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and that's probably due to the temperature and a longer growing season and such. Lamprey, you use the term recolonized. So lamprey can basically be temporally extirpated from a stream for a period of time where you won't see them, but then they can come back. Do we have a good, is, is that a habitat issue or do we have a good understanding of why there are periods of time where lamprey will occupy a certain waterway and then periods of time when they are cannot be found? Well, uh, in many cases, we have very good reasons. For example, in San Luis Obispo Creek, where they, they disappeared sometime before 2011 and reappeared in uh, 2017, um, there was a change to a weir down in the right down at the head of the estuary that effectively blocked them from moving upstream. And then as soon as we provided passage over that weir, um, within about two years, they recolonized and uh, have reestablished a abundant distribution throughout the drainage. So in that case, it's very definite. As you move down into Southern California, you get a lot more with, with drought, with low flows, with, you know, really sporadic flow events that open up the 
the bar at the mouth of the river, you probably have a lot of extirpation events, short-term extirpation events that are caused by lack of access or by the river drying up completely. And then when conditions are, are ripe for lamprey to move back in, they appear to come back in for a period of time. So down, down there at the, at the southern end, uh, in fact, we just, in 2020, right before COVID, we um, were able to collect some amacetes in the Santa Margarita River, which had not had amacetes for decades. And it appears that with a change in the entry there um, on the marine base, that by improvements in the fish passage facility, they came back in. So it, it seems like down at the southern end of their range, and remember, they go all the way down into northern Mexico, into northern Baja California to the Rio Santo Domingo down outside of Ensenada. So in, the, in those systems, they do seem to fluctuate. So that, that for, for us, that says, okay, even if you don't have lampreys in your river right now, but you're within the range, you want to maintain management policies that promote their habitat and that give them passage, give them access, even though they're not there right now. So it really kind of shifts the paradigm of who are we, who are we managing for? Well, we're even managing for species that aren't there right now, but may show up. Right. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And it, it ties into the, the, the next questions I was going to ask you about, which related to what are some of the ecological issues that are affecting lamprey and, and, and what is the status of a lot of these species? The, they were petitioned for listing. The Pacific lamprey was petitioned for listing back in 2001 or three, something like that. And uh, it was, uh, it was turned down and there's no question that the status of the, um, of the population, there's been a substantial decline in the numbers of Pacific lamprey coming up the rivers. So that is certainly a point of concern. The question of why that is, we really aren't completely sure yet. There's a number of sort of incidental threats with uh, water quality and, and flow regimes, and um, there's no real um, you know, take issues. People aren't collecting enough lampreys to cause a problem. But the main, the main problem we find in freshwater is passage restrictions. That just stands way out there. That there are uh, structures put into the rivers that have blocked about 40% of the Pacific lamprey's natural range. You know, this, this goes from, you know, all the, all the dams in the Columbia River down to a change in a little weir down in San Luis Obispo Creek that extirpated that small stream's population. The, uh, it also turns out that because of our management focus on anadromous salmonids, that the fishways that had been put in, the fish ladders, to benefit salmonids often represent a barrier to lampreys. And the reason for that is that lampreys don't jump and those structures are generally designed either for jumping from pool to pool or from going through very high velocity chutes in between uh, compartments. 
Lampreys are very efficient swimmers, but they're not really fast swimmers. And as I say, they don't jump. But remember, if we go back to lampreys having been around for 450 million years, they've figured out some pretty smooth go-arounds when they encounter a barrier. So what lampreys do when they encounter a barrier is they go to the edge and to the peripheral areas and low velocities, and then they will climb right over a 30-foot waterfall. No problem. So they're able to get past barriers, natural barriers that salmon can't get past, but what they can't get past is a 90-degree corner when they're climbing. So if you think about it, that here's this creature that's able to suction its way up a 30-foot waterfall, but just like if you had a sucker on a, a, you know, a little sucker dart on a piece of wet glass, you could move that all over really effectively. But when you got to the edge, you'd lose the suction. And that's what happens with lampreys when they hit a corner on a L bracket or a grate or a top of an, a concrete wall that's nice and square. And that stops them. So we've lost we've lost forty percent of the habitat simply to that. Um, and then we have water water issues, especially in California, where a lot of the stream reaches occupied by lampreys, particularly in the lower portion of the of the drainages, dry up. Some of those dried up naturally, but we have obviously a lot of systems now that are drying up due to uh, water withdrawals or groundwater withdrawals, one or the other. The other part of the story, and this is one we really don't have a handle on, is the Pacific lamprey is a, essentially a predator. It's a parasite, but it requires a prey base. And we don't know much at all about what's going on with Pacific lamprey when they're offshore. What we do know is that the prey base for lampreys, which is primarily fish, um, hake was probably an important prey species. It's easy to find. It's nice, has soft skin, and uh, and they move up and down in the water columns so the lampreys can stay in the dark and they can find new uh, prey individuals. The um, fisheries resource off the off the coast is clearly uh, substantially less than it was 30, 40 years ago and, and even beyond. So I think that is, that is part of the problem as well that has caused this decline, but we really, don't, we really don't have a handle on it. What we do have a handle on is water flow and passage, and those are where we really try to put our effort in from a conservation standpoint. There's also been some really creative ways that I've seen um, lamprey passage restored. It, it, one in particular I think of is in uh, in the eel, which is named after lamprey, the eel yeah. river. Um, there's there's a site, um, do you want to describe that a Van little Arsdale. bit? Some of the, the creative? Sure, yeah, in fact, the I, creative I was just down there last week. Um, and uh, one of the, the cool things about lampreys is because they have 
a totally different way of moving past barriers than other fishes, that the solutions for getting them past barriers have to be different. <laughs> you can't think of how to make a passage for a salmon and say it'll work for lamprey unless you just open up the stream. The lampreys, it turns out, and this comes uh, from work that Damon Goodman and I did, particularly at Van Arsdale there on the eel, but also at other sites, and some early work done by people in the Columbia where they put up a sort of a, um, a ramp, a big ramp at, at Bonneville as an experiment. Um, we spent a lot of nights watching lampreys trying to deal with a 50 a 50 uh, pool fish ladder down on the eel to get over a 60 foot dam. And what we found by pit tagging, putting little transmitters in the lampreys and tracking their movement up the ladder and such is that on that particular ladder, only 10% were making it to the top of the ladder. And it was taking that 10% three weeks to get there. Now, this is a ladder that when the salmon move up, it probably takes them a couple hours to get to the, the top, if that. So we watched the lampreys, and we watched where they were having problems, and we watched where they liked to go. And then we tried a bunch of experiments of what sort of structures would be the easiest for them to get past. So we rounded the corners, and uh, we put in apertures down near the bottom that they could try to swim through, and very various approaches. But one of them was a four-inch tube. And we discovered that lampreys are perfectly happy going up a tube instead of climbing up a waterfall. And that tube, you can wrap it all around the fish ladder. You can go up over catwalks. You can go anywhere you want. Sometimes it's vertical. Sometimes it's flat. And all it needs is about an inch of water going down it to keep the inside wet but not fully loaded. And the lampreys, once they get in there, they just suck their way right up the tube. And so we now have a, going over this, this uh, dam on the Eel River, we have a 200, actually two 250-foot tubes that go from the bottom of the ladder right up to the top. They go through a video monitoring station, so we're able to see each lamprey that goes by and count it. And it's just clear, flexible tube like you'd use for, for uh, irrigation pumping and stuff, clear PVC tube. And now it takes the lampreys three hours to go up over the dam. We get 100% success. And we had 12,000 lampreys go up that tube in the first year after we put it in. It was a big year for lampreys. So anyway, that's one of the things. But then at the other end, and this whole thing, this whole thing when you think about getting lampreys over the top of a 60-foot dam, the passage facility is less than $1,000 worth of materials plus a couple hundred dollars for a video monitoring station. And you're done. The, uh, at the other end, we, down there in San Luis Obispo, 
the lampreys were extirpated by this weir. It's about a, about a five foot weir made out of sheet steel. And in order to get salmon past it more easily, they cut a notch in it and put a U channel on the downstream side to reinforce the edge. So you have a U facing down on the side that the lampreys are trying to climb up. You, that's how you design a lamprey barrier. So it extirpated. We lost all the lampreys out of that, that drainage. But then we put in what we refer to as a lamp ramp, which is just a sheet of curved metal coming up the face of the weir and then with flow, a little bit of flow over it, curving over in about a one-foot radius curve and down over the other side. That cost us $314 and a couple hours of installation to reintroduce, to allow lampreys to recolonize the entire drainage. So that's the kind of solutions we're looking for, where we can go in, rather than change a big fish ladder, we go, like the lampreys, we try to find ways to kind of go around go around it. But it's great that other other people and fish passage people and people designing these, you know, uh, fishways and such for other species, if they can just take into account the lampreys, then at, on the front end, then you can avoid problems like sharp edges, which are just part of the construction. You can avoid the sharp edges or you can provide a lamprey route through the system that involves lower velocities and curved edges that they can, they can climb over. But a big part of what we're doing is sort of like today is talking to people about lampreys, getting them familiar and making them aware of the issues. Right. Yeah. It's, um, there, there's some amazing footage online, particularly at, at Van Arsdale of lamprey trying to get up and over um, some of the depths and it's, it's, it's almost kind of tragic. Like you're just watching all of these, you know, lamprey try and climb up and they're falling down and they're trying to get back up. I mean, it's kind of like watching salmon doing the same thing. If there's a barrier, they can't get over, you know, they just keep jumping and jumping. I don't know. It's it's, it's frustrating and, it, and it's something that we put in the river. Yeah. Right. Uh, turning the, the the conversation just slightly, you know, these uh, fish are were historically and, and still today really important food source for a lot of in the Columbia River Basin and in Northern California. Um, I believe like the Yurok and the Karuk and the Weot all have cultural all up and down the coast. Fish. Yes. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Pr- probably almost every tribe has some tie to to this fish and and in part because it it is a really good food source but do you want to talk at all about the the relationship between lamprey and and people and and uh, maybe even in a historic context or in today's context too is it is the fishing still the same (laughs) that it once was or or is this is it harder for the tribes to rely on this as a food source yeah, quick answer on the last part is no, the, the fishery is hugely reduced. The, um, even from the 1970s, there's been multiple orders of magnitude reduction in the number of lamprey 
that are coming up into the rivers. Uh, when we compare it to the number of lamprey that were coming up the rivers, presumably uh, in uh, pre, pre-contact times, it was, um, I mean, it, it's just nothing. That you, you, have to ima- you have to imagine the waterfalls and the rivers just packed with lampreys. And even, even in the 1970s, when you talk to people who live on the rivers, they always talk about how, oh man, by, by midsummer, the rivers really smelled because there were so many dead lamprey in them and uh, that it spawned and died. And uh, the only ones that really liked this were the, the kids because they could, they could uh, have lamprey fights and throw rotten lampreys at each other at the swimming hole. But the, uh, from the standpoint, the, the, as a cultural resource and, and as a nutritional resource, lampreys were hugely important to the coastal tribes because the lamprey came in, the lamprey in migration. So when you started seeing the lampreys coming in, they were the first big resource to come up the rivers after the winter. So after the hard times of the river, you got this influx of highly nutritive, high calorie, uh, and easy to catch fish to help people recover from the, uh, sort of the winter, the winter period of low foods. So they were very important from that standpoint. And because of that importance, they're culturally important. This was a very well-respected fish by the Native American tribes along the coast and crucial to their cultures and, uh, you know, included in many of the legends and stories. And uh, it it was also a, a big to go out and fish for eel, as you say, along the coast here, they're referred to as eels. They're not an eel, but, um, you know, was a, a family event. It was a community event. It uh, helped bind people together. You know, you taught your kid how to, how to bring in eels back to the family. And, uh, and to a great extent, there's still quite a bit of tribal fishing, but it's, it's, it's very limited to what it could have been. Uh, or would have been in the in the past. Uh, I think down at the mouth of the Klamath, you still see a lot of um, tribal fishers going down for eel. But it's um, no one you none of the elders that you talk to would suggest that it was anything like what it used what it used to be. And and you know, right. I mean, the, so from a tribal perspective, they were really important. And from an ecological standpoint all along the coast, if we think of, you know, of ourselves as part of the ecology of the coast, everybody wants to eat lamprey. The, when, you, when you have a run of lamprey going up, you see the eagles eating them, the ospreys eating them, dropping from cars, uh, the bears come down, the raccoons down, the otters are at the waterfalls, the vultures come in. The mink are in there grabbing, grabbing lampreys. Everybody likes lamprey. And, and you know, we have this, we, we have this current sort of cultural, uh, uh, aversion to lampreys. But when you go back and even in the seventies, we have pictures of people down on the Russian river. You're, you know, Euro Americans who are out there having their picnics. And they're busy grabbing lampreys off the, the little weir down there and barbecuing them. 
And uh, a lot of people, a lot of people were eating lampreys. They're very tasty. They're very, you know, in Europe, it's a big thing uh, to eat lampreys. In fact, the queen has a, in her jubilee, she's supposed to eat a lamprey pie, um, but they can't find enough lampreys that aren't contaminated with heavy metals for her to eat. But the, uh, anyway, so, so everybody around, you know, around the world and I know for the Maori down in New Zealand, the local lampreys were very important. But um, everybody, big and small, likes to eat a lamprey. Well, this is, is just, is, it's really, really interesting. I'm, I'm curious, since it is a, a fish that we're learning more and more about, um, if you are aware of any kind of new research or are there specific questions that need to be answered so that we can be more aware of what their specific needs are and we can be better stewards of our streams and rivers so that these populations can rebound and recover? Well, that's a big question. Uh, There's lots and lots of questions out there. And one of the nice things about lamprey is that for somebody who's interested in studying fishes, that um, as I mentioned before, I think any question you have about lamprey biology is something that we really don't know enough about. And so it's a wide open field for research and study and there's plenty of opportunity for conservation actions. So it's, it's kind of a, a nice, uh, a nice open field for somebody interested in, in fish biology and fish conservation. I think, you know, two really big things that we're trying to understand is the role of uh, desiccation in rivers and how amos, how to keep amicetes from, uh, that are trapped in the sediment when we either reduce flow, we, uh, drain a, a canal, we uh, take like the Salinas River where the water just dries up at the bottom. How do the amicetes respond to this? Is there any way to do management actions in rivers that reduce the impact? We recently had a, a project up in the Upper Trinity where we were, they, um, were going to excavate a uh, sediment deposition pond and it turns out that while the pond looks sort of empty, that you had 60, an estimated 60,000 amicetes in that pond. In fact, it's probably the best amicete rearing habitat in the Upper Trinity. Um, so going in and excavating that is going to have a major impact on the population. We would never think of doing something that was going to knock out 60,000 young salmon. And that was... Five, say five five generations of of larvae. The, so understanding how to work with the with with streams without um, impacting su- substantially impacting the amicetes is a big question. I think the other um, we're doing a lot of work on figuring out how to how to get lampreys past barriers, and that's a matter of implementation. Um, and I think the other real big question is what's going on offshore? What's, what's driving this decline beyond the loss of, habit, of freshwater habitat? What's going on offshore that we can affect? You know, unless people stop eating 
fake crab meat that's built out of hake, um, we're not going to change those sorts of policies. Um, mm-hmm. So we're, it's something we have to kind of live with, I think, for the for the time being. And, um, you know, we may be looking at a general a drop in the level of lampreys, but, you know, that that impacts a lot of people, too. And certainly from a tribal a tribal trust standpoint, we have the uh, I think the responsibility to to promote the the rebuilding of the population. Yeah, I know it's it, it, it's similar to to salmon issues. It's like once we get into the marine environment, it just gets so much harder to study these fish, and so you know. Yeah, lots of questions there about what's happening, especially as a lot of our fish assemblages, particularly in the the near shore environment, are are changing due to changing water temperatures and um, yeah, and and habitats. Th- th- this is kind of a small question, but it had come up at one point where I was just curious: when a Pacific, when or or, or any parasitic lamprey, when they're attached to a host, do, do we know like how long will they stay attached to one host and I'm sure they they must like they're they're the the the, the geographic areas that they go while they're attached to a host is probably pretty interesting too. Um, well, yeah, do we have a good yeah. sense of that. So we don't have a good sense on how long they stay on a single host. Um, like I said, we sort of assume that they don't stay on long enough to kill the host. Um, and um, when you know, if we have them in captivity. Um, they'll go on a host and often in that setting, the host, you know, does die that they never kind of can get away from the lamprey and the lamprey doesn't have other choices, but it's a, it's a very artificial setting. And in places where fishes um, coexist with, with, you know, their prey populations, like in upper Klamath Lake, you do see that the old suckers, you know, that are 35 years old will have multiple, scars on them where they've been parasitized um, and still survived. The the question of transport is kind of interesting because in the past, we there was a paradigm of, well, lampreys are lousy swimmers. So if lampreys are going all up and down the coast, they, um, they, they're only doing it because they hooked on a, some capable fish that, uh, that, you know, transported them up to Alaska or transported them down the coast, whatever, uh, or they hooked onto a whale. It turns out that lampreys will actually hook onto the tails of whales and get a good blubber feast. Um, and I doubt that whale cares much, but they end up with a little dimple in their tail. The, um, but it, we uh, actually down at Van Arsdale, where we've been able to do quite a bit of research, the, um, We've looked at the swimming speed of lampreys, and also up in the Columbia, they've done some radio tracking of lampreys moving upstream. And you can pretty much figure that a lamprey, lampreys swim very differently than salmon. They actually, they undulate. And this undulation is extremely efficient. And what they actually do is they create low pressure in front of their body by the, by the undulations, by the wiggles in their body. And that sucks them forward, sort of like an airplane wing isn't held up 
by air from below. It's actually held up by low pressure above the wing. That's the purpose of an airfoil. And lampreys use this to swim extremely efficiently and cover in fresh water. They seem to cover about 18 kilometers a day. Now, that's not moving very fast. That's only moving uh, about one and a half body lengths a second, maybe, you know, uh, uh, about three feet a uh, second, much slower than a salmon would swim. But if you're doing that very efficiently 24 hours a day, and especially if you're f- working with the current coastal currents, you know, you move 18 miles a day, that's a lot faster than somebody walking the Pacific Crest Trail. So you go down, <laughs> you can go from, you know, Baja to Canada in uh, in a few months without expending a lot of energy and picking up some food along the way. And so these distances that we think of as being, you know, really extreme going up to Alaska or down to Mexico, actually, given some time, um, they're they're very reasonable and they have a very low uh, because of the the way lampreys swim there, and they drop down deep into the they uh, go down. We find pictures of them down at like 400 meters, feeding on hake. And so down in that environment, not only are there currents to work with, but also you're in the dark, and so uh, it's a a uh, being in the dark's reassuring when you're in the open ocean because nobody else can see you at least, and you can swim all day long if you want. Right. Oh, how interesting. This is just great. Well, we are running uh, low on time, so I just want to give you an opportunity. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that would be interesting to share or important for people to know? Well, I think I think the really important thing is that people know about lampreys. And another point, and we touched on it, is the diversity here, especially in Northern California, Southern Oregon, of lamprey. So when we when we talk about lamprey, we shouldn't just think about uh, about the Pacific lamprey, but we're, we should think about all the resident lampreys that are in shore within the Klamath Basin. Um, we don't seem to have any conservation issues with the resident lampreys. They all seem to be doing quite well and they're well distributed and you can they're abundant when you when you find them um but uh we do have fascinating lampreys up there including this miller lake lamprey which was the smallest lamprey uh is the smallest parasitic lamprey and uh, was originally known only from miller lake uh and in the 1950s they uh, found a lamprey there that was putting small holes in in trout this is a four inch lamprey and uh, so they poisoned the whole lake killed off the whole population and then discovered that uh, this was a new species new to science and uh, it was now extinct and since that time the good part of the story is in 97 we found a few individuals in below the lake and then we surveyed and we found that they were more prevalent than we thought in the upper Klamath Basin. And just this month, we've been introducing amicetes into, um, up into the lake again, and they've reestablished and started spawning. They've transformed and started spawning, and we are now finding indications of successful adult um, parasitism 
very small holes on trout uh, don't affect the trout uh, in the lake. So we've successfully brought Miller Lake lamprey back to Miller Lake, which is a whole different story. That's that's great. That is not an easy thing to accomplish generally from any species conservation standpoint. If you have a specific geographic area where you've got yeah seven different types of species occupying one large watershed, that, that that's a pretty important thing. Kind of like a, a biological hotspot, right? You, you really want to focus in on oh, the places is. and make sure and then, that, that you're protecting them. Yeah. And there there are more lampreys species in the Klamath Basin than any other group of fishes. So it, it's a it's a international hotspot. Well, I really again really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. I've... Well, it's great fun. Thank you. And that concludes my interview with Stuart Reed, a fisheries biologist with Western Fishes and lamprey expert, and this episode of the Ecology Hour which can be listened to every Tuesday at 7 p.m. And thanks for listening to Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 